Since September, we've been on a journey through every chapter of the book of Luke, one of the four biographies of Jesus found in the New Testament. During each week of Lent, we've slowed down considerably, focusing in on nearly every episode and part of Luke's chapters 22 and 23. These chapters are known as Luke's passion narrative, his account of Jesus' suffering and crucifixion. This morning, I will be reading Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 32. You may want to look in your Bible in the pew and follow along as I read. In these seven short verses, Luke describes the scene as Jesus is led forcibly through the streets of Jerusalem from Pilate's palace to Golgotha, the place of crucifixion. Please attend the reading of God's word, this particularly, to me, difficult and peculiar passage. I read Luke chapter 3, verses 26 through 32. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in, the, in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us! And to the hills, Cover us! For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. Here ends the reading of this particular passage. Thanks be to God. If you feel like your life has been a bit dull these last few weeks, hang on tight. Because it turns out in the next 36 hours, not just one, but two uncommonly intense events are going to transpire. One, tomorrow night, your taxes are due. <laughs> and if that comes as news to you, then the next 36 hours are going to be intense indeed. But in that same span of time, another uncommonly intense event is going to grip our planet because... Winter is coming. That's right. Tonight, HBO releases the first episode of the final season of their epic saga, Game of Thrones. Now, I have to do a quick disclaimer. As your pastor, I can neither recommend nor endorse that you tune in. Because if Game of Thrones is uncommonly intense, it's also uncommonly violent and uncommonly graphic. And I'd like to think, I wish I could say, that that is the reason that I held out for so long. 
until 2017, in fact, I refused to watch a single episode of the HBO season. The real reason, though, is one that perhaps you've heard me say before. It's that I was an early and particularly passionate enthusiast of the books of the series, the fantasy series written by George R.R. Martin on which the HBO season is based. And I did not want anything to ruin those books for me. And while... Yes, the books, too, are a bit violent and a bit graphic. For my money, they are also brilliant. I love, I mean, and you can see the scale of this thing, I love the long, chapter-long digressions that George R. R. Martin does habitually off into some granular detail about some aspect of this mythical realm of Westeros, which is he has created. For me, as a pastor, I was particularly interested in long, long passages about the theology of the religion of Westeros and their devotion to the seven-faced God, which is Martin's, I think, rather imaginative expansion of our worship of a triune God. Anyway, no doubt it was the pop culture buzz these last few weeks, this buzz in anticipation of tonight's launch of the final season that got me thinking about George R.R. R. Martin at the same time that I was thinking about this peculiar little passage from Luke's passion narrative, this passion that describes the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows that Minna just read for us. And specifically, I found myself thinking about a signature literary technique that George Martin uses in each one of these books. It is his masterful use of the technique known as point of view. Now, if you've read these books, you know what I'm talking about. You know that Martin writes each chapter from the point of view of a different character. And for Martin's books, for The Song of Ice and Fire, that means a gigantic cast of different characters. And what's interesting, it's not just the main characters. Martin writes point of view chapters from the point of view of a servant or maybe a barmaid, might be even one of the Stark children's direwolves. Helpfully, though, at the top of every chapter, instead of a chapter title, Martin supplies the name of the point of view character for whom that chapter, it's their point of view. And this chapter that you see on the screen right now, for instance, is from the point of view of the saga's hero, Jon Snow. All of this to say that as the action of this epic story unfolds, Martin lets us readers experience it from a series of different human vantage points. Which brings me back to Luke. You see, when Luke sat down to write his gospel, and he needed to explain how Jesus got from the courtyard of the palace of Pontius Pilate to Golgotha, to Calvary, he could have just told us that the Roman soldiers dragged him there, that they forced Jesus, as was the custom, to carry his own cross through those narrow streets of Jerusalem along this route that even to this day, you can walk it to this day, is known as the Way of Sorrow, the Via Dolorosa. But Luke 
doesn't just want us to know about it. Luke wants us to experience it. As if, as the choir just said, we are there. We are present. And so in this passage, in just the space of seven quick verses, Luke does exactly what George R.R. Martin does in his books. Luke invites us readers to experience this heartbreaking scene through the eyes of a series of flesh and blood point of view characters. Three of them, to be exact. And what's fascinating is that these are not the main characters of Luke's story. These are not the disciples that we've gotten to know so well. Far from it, in fact. Isn't it interesting that Luke chooses to have us readers experience Jesus' most vulnerable, most intense moment of suffering, not from the point of view of three insiders, but three outsiders? An African named Simon who has somehow washed up in Judea. A group of women, unnamed and invisible in that man's world. And two anonymous death row criminals sent to die for their unnamed crimes. You see, Luke doesn't just want us to walk the Via Dolorosa. He invites us to walk it with these three groups of insiders, and from each one of them to learn something significant about what is taking place. First, the patron saint of all bystanders, Simon of Cyrene. I love how Luke gives us only the barest details about this man. Luke forces us into active thought. We've got to complete the story. We've got to fill in the rest of What's going on with Simon? For instance, Cyrene, what's that? Well, it is the capital of Cyrenaica, which is today in northern Africa. It is in Libya. But how and why Simon happens to find himself across the entire Mediterranean in Jerusalem is a story that we readers have to supply. Well, his name, Simon, is a Jewish name, so... You could imagine that he's in Jerusalem for the Passover, but Luke doesn't tell us that. Luke does tell us, though, and rather enigmatically, that Simon at that moment was coming in from the country. Was he a farmer? Was he a trader? Was he a diplomat? We don't know. But in context, the phrase seems to imply that Simon wasn't part of Luke's previous scene. So he wasn't part of that raging crowd in Pilate's courtyard. Which to me suggests that at that moment, Simon was likely a bit clueless about what was going on. In fact, Mark in his gospel identifies Simon as a passerby. A passerby. And yet... How quickly Simon finds himself yanked from minding his own business to carrying a cross for the Messiah. Now, in the larger span of Luke's gospel, carrying a cross is no incidental matter. Back in Luke 9 and again in Luke 16, taking up a cross is for Luke the very definition of what a disciple does. And so... We have this dark irony. Here 
at the moment of Jesus' greatest need, the only one actually doing what a disciple does is not one of the 12 disciples. It is this clueless nobody just off the boat from Africa. Do you ever feel like Simon of Cyrene? You were just a bit curious about this Jesus person and you ventured just a little too close. And suddenly, somehow, you ended up in over your head carrying a cross. All you wanted was a bit of innocuous religion. But somehow, before you knew it, things got real serious. I have a hunch Luke is telling us that while, yes, occasionally a person might have the luxury of a slow, deliberate, reflective process of coming to faith, more often than not, it follows the jarring trajectory of Simon's experience. It just sort of happens before you know it. One minute, you're minding your own business. The next minute, you've got a cross on your back, and you're wondering what you think about it. Luke does all of that in the space of a single verse, and then he drops it. And as much as I would like to know what happens to Simon later that day, what happens later that week, what happens later in his life, as quickly as Luke gives us this quick snapshot of the Via Dolorosa through Simon's eyes, Luke yanks our attention along, insisting that we inhabit a second human point of view as we walk that painful route with Jesus. The point of view of a group of unnamed women who... Apparently, unlike any of the 11 remaining male disciples at that moment, are choosing to stick with Jesus to the bitter end. And I want to pause here because it is easy for us to miss the significance that Luke acknowledges as valid and as interesting the point of view of women. In the first century, that really was not something that authors did. Yet throughout his gospel, and Luke more than the other three gospel writers, Luke consistently mentions women as Jesus' constant and faithful followers, often as here more faithful than the men. So here, at the crescendo of Luke's agonizing story of Jesus' passion, of his suffering, Luke is crediting this, these women with getting it, with understanding and entering the grief and the tragedy of this moment. And so, as they walk, they give voice to their heartbreak. And they use the traditional expressive rituals that mourning women in that culture would often use. Odds are that they are ululating. You know, that piercing wail of grief while they beat their chests with anguish. Well, think about it. Throughout Lent, we have been doing our best to enter into Jesus' deep passion. And it's a place of pain that most of us resist going. Well, these women clearly go there without even needing to be asked. But in our Lenten journey so far, we have mostly thought about this idea of passion, this idea of suffering, as something that applies to Jesus. We are witnessing his suffering. And that's probably how these women, at least at the beginning of this passage, are experiencing that moment as well. 
But right there on the Via Dolorosa, Jesus pauses to engage these women in order to turn their grief upside down and inside out. Don't mourn for me, he tells them. I'm going to be okay. I am following the path laid out for my father, and he is with me. The real grief of this moment, the real tragedy, Jesus says, is all about you. And he addresses them as daughters of Jerusalem. Well, this is actually a favorite idiom of the Old Testament prophets, and they would use it to mean all of the people of God, male and female. And this is also a cue that in what Jesus is about to say in these next few verses, Jesus is going to be stepping into the role and picking up the theological claims of those Old Testament prophets. So pay attention. And sure enough, next verse. In an image as blunt and as galling as any prophets, Jesus paints about as stark a picture as you can imagine about just how serious is the situation that all humanity faces at that moment, about why all of this heartbreak is necessary in the first place. As those prophets warned again and again, God's people and all humanity with them have come under God's judgment, and they have been found entirely wanting They've been found guilty and disobedient and treacherous. And because of that, the grief of this moment, the tragedy and the heartache of this moment is so stark that no loving parent would wish a child to endure it. The suffering I'm about to endure, Jesus is telling them, will so painfully expose and reveal the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of your own lives that in that moment, barrenness, childlessness would seem a blessing. As in, you have no idea how serious all this really is. And then... Having cued their ears to think about those Old Testament prophets, Jesus proceeds to directly quote one of those prophets. And this is the prophet Hosea. And this is that strange verse about the mountains and the hills falling on us. This is what this means. Hosea lived way back in the 8th century B.C. And God chose Hosea to deliver bad news to the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes called Samaria. News about God's impending judgment. And by quoting Hosea here on the Via Dolorosa, Jesus is connecting those two moments, declaring that the human faithlessness that is sending him to the cross at that moment is in fact the same Faithlessness against which Hosea railed in the 8th century. Because it is the basic shape that human sin always takes and has always taken. For anyone, including you or me, it is the decision to put something else or someone else in the place that God belongs. And the Old Testament has a particular word for this. It is the word idolatry. In the 8th century, in Samaria, idolatry took a very concrete form. 
the bronze calf idol that represented the Canaanite god Baal, which the Israelites kept secretly worshiping on these hilltop altars that are called high places. And so, after centuries of warnings, the bad news that God delivers through Hosea is that God, as an act of judgment, is giving Samaria over to the terror of invasion, to the conquering armies of the Assyrian Empire. And it will be a calamity so terrible that the people of God will wish that the very mountains cave in on them. Here's how Hosea puts it in chapter 10 of this, is from the book of Hosea. Samaria's king, as in your king, will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they, then all Israel will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So, daughters of Jerusalem... Jesus says, so all of you who witnessed this Via Dolorosa, so every person who has ever considered this agonizing procession to the cross, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep that it is your own idolatry. It is your own persistent refusal to put God at the center of your life where he belongs that has led to all of this brokenness, that has led to this unbearable path that I now walk. And when you fully understand that, you will weep indeed. You will weep with weeping so deep that you will wish the very mountains might fall on you, that the very hills might cover you. Which is really the same agonizing awareness that George Frederick Handel conveys so powerfully in what is likely the second best-known chorus of the passion portion of Handel's magnificent oratorio, The Messiah, which throughout Lent has been the focus of our 9 o'clock education hour as Pastor Kurt has led us through this musical exploration of Jesus' passion and Jesus' suffering. In the chorus, Surely he hath borne our griefs, which we're about to hear, Handel uses the word of another Old Testament prophet, in this case it's Isaiah, to acknowledge the painful truth that the real source of all of Jesus' sorrow and grief is our own idolatry. It's our own transgressions, our own iniquities, our own sin. So we have Simon, we have the women, 
That leaves us one final point of view, one final set of eyes through which Luke wants us to see Jesus on the way to the cross. These two criminals who will be executed on either side of him later that day. Now, in their Gospels, Matthew and Mark don't introduce these two until they are already on the cross. Luke does something different. Luke alone mentions them as fellow travelers on the Via Dolorosa. But Luke, Luke also introduces and describes these two criminals with what I think is a really intriguing turn of phrase. Now, it's not evident in any of the English translations I could find. And most likely it's because the English translators are not entirely comfortable with this. But... The most natural way to read Luke's original Greek sentence here is that two other criminals were also led away. Wow, think about that. As in, there's Jesus, and now there are two other criminals. In my reading, I discovered that in a few early manuscripts, these were early copies of Luke's gospel, the scribe who was copying it was so certain that Luke surely could not have intended to imply that Jesus was a criminal that that scribe rearranged Luke's syntax in the sentence so that it would remove all of the ambiguity. But as I've thought about this this week, I've become convinced that Luke means precisely this. With the sin of the world, with your sin and my sin already weighing heavenly on his shoulders, Jesus there on the Via Dolorosa has essentially already become a criminal, a death row inmate. And Paul, when he writes 2 Corinthians, is going to write essentially the same thing. He's going to say that for our sake, God made him made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Jesus, for us, steps into the shoes of a convicted sinner. And I'm convinced that Luke first puts these two criminals there on the way of sorrow, and second, introduces us to them with this borderline sacrilegious phrase so that we see Jesus through their eyes as a fellow death row convict. Because in a very real sense, we are being led to the cross with Jesus. First, and most important, he is with us. He is in solidarity with us, facing sin and sin's deathly consequences with us. But at the same time, we are with him, walking with him the way of the cross. And Paul, again, will essentially say the same thing. This time in Galatians, he says, For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, three outsiders. An African. Some unnamed women. And two death row convicts. By inviting us to briefly inhabit the point of view of each, to see what they see there on the Via Dolorosa, Luke confronts each of us with the sheer terrible significance of what is about to take place on that cross, but also with our own unavoidable complicity 
making that cross necessary in the first place. It's tempting to leave it there, to leave it in that dark place, to allow Holy Week and Good Friday to be every bit as dark as they truly are. And yet, even here on the Via Dolorosa, Jesus drops a subtle hint that what is coming is not winter, it's Easter. And it's easy to miss. It's in this final enigmatic phrase that Jesus says to those women. It's that phrase about the green wood and the dry wood. Was that puzzling to you? Well, turns out that this is yet another quote from an Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel in this case. But this time, if you actually take the time to follow the reference, what you'll discover is not another grim word of hopeless judgment, but a beautiful hopeful promise that God at the end of the day is and always will be a God of delightful and unexpected reversals. So I'm going to close with what Ezekiel says that Jesus is quoting here. As we await this week God's great reversal. Here's what Ezekiel says. All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, I make the high tree, I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree, and I make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken, I will accomplish it. 